Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, set dressers, composers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, you name it, we talk to them. And we're going to do a lot of talking today. Uh, I've got two wonderful guests uh, with two very different films um, that I'm very excited to speak with these filmmakers about. First up is going to be Tony Ahedo, writer, director, producer, and editor of his feature directorial debut called Icon. Uh, I'm going to put Tony's already on hold, so I'm going to put him put him on. Ah, I can't talk today either. Uh, <laughs> going to bring him live on the line in a minute here, but it's a wonderful, it's a very sweet film. It's a very unique perspective. It's a coming-of-age film. It's about fatherhood, and it's from the viewpoint, the POV, of a young man, a young high school student, and it's his take on teen pregnancy after his girlfriend gets pregnant. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I was more than pleasantly surprised, so I'm going to bring Tony on in just a second, and then at the midpoint of the show, a documentary you are never going to believe. Truth is stranger than fiction. Syndrome K. Stephen Edwards, documentarian, is going to be joining us live to talk about this. It's a World War II uh, story. Uh, takes place in Italy. This is a true story uh, regarding... Three doctors at a hospital on Tiber Island, they hid the Jews who were in the ghetto in Rome, the Jewish ghetto in Rome, hid them in the hospital by creating the fake disease, Syndrome K, which the Nazis were so afraid of contracting it, they did not search, they did not go near these people, and they were able to save so many until the Allies appeared um, under General Clark uh, on, I think, on June 6, 1944, uh, in Rome and came to the hospital. And finally, these people who had been in hiding with this disease in isolation were free. Uh, and it's a very, very powerful story. It was a piece of history I didn't know about, and I have to, I have to reach out to my pal Lisa Scotolini, author, uh, because her historical novel that she did last year, that she did all this research for, including in the Jewish ghetto area in Italy, uh, and it's set in this time period. So I have to find out if Lisa... Uh, learned anything about this or knew anything about this story. But Stephen will be joining us uh, midpoint of the show. And, of course, this is Ray Liotta's final film as a narrator. Uh, so there's a lot of poignancy also. But without any further ado, let's bring the very talented first feature film director, writer, editor, producer, Tony Ahedo live. Hi, Tony. Hi, thanks for having me, Debbie. I am thrilled to have you. This is, number one, this is actually a very sweet film. 
Uh, we've got a lot. Yeah. We've got a lot of trials and tribulations here that go beyond the normal teen angst of life. Uh, but what you do is you tell this story of this young couple, Sam and Anna, high school students. Uh, Anna gets pregnant. What are they going to do? Uh, but all of this we see through the POV of Sam. We don't see the male perspective on this subject. We've seen all kinds of Lifetime movies and reality shows that talk about teen pregnancy from the female perspective. Um, you know, even an episode of Bones many years ago mm-hmm. was a pregnancy packed in high school. And Spencer Breslin played the, uh, the high school boy who was the one who had gotten all these girls pregnant. And they spend maybe 10 minutes with the male perspective when, it da- when it's brought to his attention. How are you going to pay for all these kids? What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, so to see a whole film devoted to the male perspective here, I think is fabulous, Tony. Absolutely fabulous. And on the whole, your first feature, very well done. You've got beautiful cinematography. Um, you keep things light, you keep things real, you don't uh, sugarcoat or give us any false tints or washes, um, natural light, it is, it's real, and you can feel the rawness of emotion that our poor, our poor uh, young man Sam is going through. Just job so well done, Tony, so well done. Thank you, Thank you so much for all the kind words. You know, where this is not the kind of film, as I said, we haven't seen a film like this with this POV before. Where did the idea for this story originate? So, me being the writer and a man, um, obviously on this topic, I don't know the female perspective, but I could give in my insight on what a man might be thinking or going through or feeling that. And as you stated before, I thought the female perspective has been portrayed really well, mm-hmm. you know, across multiple different films, TV shows, but there's only a couple films maybe that had done the male perspective, but I wanted to do one that completely was just from this side and showed what was going on. And, you know, just kind of have Anna's story still developing in the background. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Sam is going through his own thing on his side. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing. Well, what I find really interesting is that it's not a microcosm of just Sam and his reaction to the pregnancy. It's also, mm-hmm. you take it, you you bring in something that impacts his own perspective about fatherhood, and that's that his father has been absentee in his life. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we also get that particular viewpoint brought in here. And I have to say, you have constructed um, the character of Sam so beautifully. Parker Padgett does an amazing job. Um... When you, when folks, when you see him, you're going to think a young Shia LaBeouf. Um, but Parker really brings some great emotion here and the layers. And that is, 
I can tell with the script, you wrote it in to the character, but then Parker really brings that to life on screen. Yeah, Parker is... Uh-oh. Yeah, he is... There you are. Hey, can you... Yeah, now we can hear you. You got me? Okay. Okay. Yeah, Parker is just... Well, when I first met him, I knew he was something special. Um, I, we had worked on a film together before, and I saw him, and I had already been writing Icon. Mm-hmm. And I kind of hadn't mentioned it to him. I was like, hey, I have this role. It's kind of, you know, you, you would be carrying the entire film, but I think you could do it because you have the range. And he was really interested. And so when the time came to the casting process, we, we still auditioned some other Sams, but he was kind of always that character I had in mind. And, yeah, when you see the film, I mean, it's, it's his film. He, he really carries that whole thing. Oh, absolutely. And he really brings to life the different emotions that a teenager deals with and the situations that they find themselves in. Uh, and he has the unique perspective of being raised by a single mother. And that kind of sets him off in some respects when he finds out he's going to be a father because he really doesn't know what fatherhood is about. And then he's grasping at straws. I got to make money. I got to do this. I got to do that. And makes rash decisions, which as teens, we've all made rash decisions. <laughs> Sam makes a few more. He takes a, a bigger leap into rashness with some of the things yeah. he does. And you really, you don't shortchange the story or the character. You let Parker run with this. You keep the camera rolling, and then you're, you're editing this yourself, and you do a great job of letting, of holding, and letting situations develop and play out. And that's a real strong suit here. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, that, that was a lot of what we did with kind of the, just, just the overall plan of going into a scene. If we had something where, I knew there was an opportunity for Parker to even improvise a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I would talk to him beforehand. I'd say, this is what's happening in this scene. This is what I want you to do. Go in there, go break something in the room. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't tell him what to break. Um, luckily, we had a whole design set. So it was like kind of anything was up for grabs. And. We, I would tell my cinematographer Harrison, hey, light this a little bit more open. Mm-hmm. I kind of, he's not going to hit a specific mark. Let's just let him go in. And Parker would kind of get all amped up before the take, go in there and just unleash kind of whatever he was feeling. And it worked a lot of the times. Well, it really did. And also, what plays so well into building this story. And building Sam is also, you and your cinematographer, you and Harrison, what you also do is you're giving us, it looks like you're using anamorphics, you're taking us back in time, um, were you, I, I'd, it almost looks like you were adjusting some aspect ratios there, I'm not sure, uh, because you go back into the 90s for when Sam is a little boy, 
Uh, and mm-hmm. when when his father was around, you've got a really nice color color palette that takes us back, but you don't go into the you know the dreaded sepia wash. Um, but yeah. we, but we feel the past, but it still feels timeless and how it's now impacting Sam uh, in the present. But you do have some visual vacillation there through the camera and and your lenses. I'm curious how you and Harrison did that. So it just it it, it took a lot of practice and just testing out our our looks, but. Harrison is kind of such a nerd about finding different <laughs> filters, finding different lenses, and he actually made a lens for the flashbacks. Wow. Um, it, yeah, so he adapted some, like, stills lens from, like, maybe the 50s or 60s that doesn't really necessarily even go on a regular cinema camera today. Sure. And he, he put it on our flashback camera we had we had two different cameras we shot with uh you know one for the present day one for the flashback so they were already going to look a little different but that vintage 60s lens it looks it looks crazy when you see it in person there's rubber bands holding it together It's, (laughs) it's it's really funny to look at but it works for the film what cameras did you end up shooting with on this so we used a Canon C200 for our, for present our primary day. present day, and we used a um, a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera mm. for the flashbacks. And so we we had options to go bigger, but we wanted to keep everything very small, very easy, because we wanted the cinematography to not overtake the story or the actors. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to be able to have the camera moving, always be able to kind of jump around. We had access to two C200s, so if we ever needed something wow. like another one, it wasn't like this big deal. Like, hey, we rented this big RE package. We only have this one camera. Mm-hmm. It was it was a little bit easier for us to not kind of have to worry about the cameras and just hey, they're going to work. They're 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 tested cameras. Let's just do this. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that you use the Black Magic. I'm a big fan of Black Magic, especially the Black Magic uh, Cinema Pockets. Um, yeah. And you know, for filmmakers, you know, Black Magic, you are affordable enough. You can buy your own, You can buy a camera and just and have it, so you don't have to worry about renting. Um. Yeah, and I love that that benefit. And then their light packs that go with the cameras are fabulous. Yeah, yeah, that was actually my pocket at the time. And we had talked a lot about if we wanted to do that. And then once Harrison kind of figured out that vintage lens on there, because mm-hmm. um, we also had talked about using like a modified VHS camera at one point. Mm. Um, so... He has all these kinds of Frankenstein rigs, and you know it's it's kind of insane. So, so he's a devotee of the Shane Hurlbut school of uh, cinematography. It sounds like because over the decades yeah. that's been Shane. It's like he creates and he builds these things, and they work. Uh, wow, wow. 
Now, because you were editing, Tony, you know, did you wait until you had all your footage to make an editing pass? Were you editing as you went? Um, you know, what was that process like for you wearing, because you're wearing, you know, three hats, actually four when you throw in producer, but writer, director, and editor, you've got that whole kill your darlings aspect going on. Mm-hmm. As an editor, you're killing the writer's words, you're killing what the director's shot. You know, this this little triangle uh, can cause you as a filmmaker as much angst as Sam was being caused by a teen pregnancy. Uh, so what was your process like with, did you wait until you had everything in the can or were you editing in your head or as you went to get a rough idea of what you still needed to capture? So I originally did not want to edit the film, (laughs) but we finished production in February of 2020 and then the lockdown <laughs> happened in March. <laughs> March 13th, so yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting there with a the whole shot film and I'm like, well, I have all this time. I guess I'll take a crack at it because, you know, I, I, I usually do edit my own productions, but now I can't sit there with an editor. I can't kind of do all these things. I had a couple friends that we had chatted about maybe them editing. Um, but now it you know, everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. So I decided to edit the movie there. And, uh, you know, I, I, even if I was the editor from Inception, I, I wouldn't have done any onset editing just because, you know, I would have felt it would have taken away from my onset kind of planning and just kind of worrying about what was going on to be happening next. I'm, I'm always kind of, when I'm directing, making the edit in my head anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you kind of do all these things, I think fatigue is is the biggest word that I could throw out there that you worry about because you write it, then you shoot it, and then you got to edit it. And by the time you get to the edit, if you're kind of like exhausted from the project. Mm-hmm. Um Luckily, that wasn't necessarily the case. I was able to get a full first cut done by April, but then after that, and I knew we we needed to shoot some some pickup pieces, and we're in the middle of the pandemic. I took a couple months break to kind of just get some f- fresh eyes on the film. I got a bunch of notes mm-hmm. from you know a bunch of the producers on the film, and we kind of just worked it from there. You know, what would you say, you know, making a film this way and jumping in and editing it yourself as a feature, what was that learning curve like for you? Because you've done shorts. That's that's no problem for you. But, you know, what kind of learning curve was it? Not just having to do this, the, all the post-production and your pickups during the pandemic and lockdowns, but that whole idea of going from 12 minutes or 18 minutes to 90 minutes? So I think the biggest thing that I learned would have just, it kind of doubles into maybe coverage and just setting up more timing. Um, You know, since, since I'm getting a look at every single take, there was definitely moments where, you know, 
I think I could have spent a little bit more time on a certain scene or maybe done a different shot. But also at the same time, I think a lot of what we did on set for this film really worked. And there's some scenes where the, the we only did two takes and it might've been one of the scenes I was talking about with Parker where he was just going in and Harrison was kind of following him with the camera. We didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. So mm -hmm. that was one where when we were developing the shot list, I was like, follow Parker. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's your, that, that's your shot list. Go in there get, go have fun. And that would work a lot of the time. Um, especially when you want your movie to feel alive and you want it to be like you're there with the characters. Um, we, we took tree of life kind of as, as a big inspiration for what they did, where they were just kind of letting the characters kind of live mm -hmm. sometimes in those moments. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, and you really feel the characters living in moments, especially Sam when he's in the alley, when his, you know, when his bicycle gets stolen, um, when he confronts, uh, you know, the guys later on in the film, you know, now mm -hmm. he's got his backup. You really get the rawness of in the moment. And it it plays so well, Tony, just so well. Thanks. Yeah, a, a funny thing about that scene is those poor kids had no idea how big I was going to let Parker go because <laughs> the rehearsal... <laughs> was just them just kind of basically reading the lines. And I told Parker, I was like, I want you to scare them. I want you to. <laughs> to... <laughs> and they did a, gr a great job, but their their reactions are, are 100% real. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. That's cruel. That's cruel. Oh, yeah. will they? Okay, now will they ever work on a film for you again in the future? Now, oh, they had a blast. They, <laughs> they, you know, after after the first take, they're like, "Wow, okay, this is what what's happening." <laughs> oh my god! You know, how much rehearsal time did you have for this film? Um, you've got some really intense scenes between Parker and Devin Hales who I've seen Devin's work before, and I think she, you cast her perfectly here as Anna. And the chemistry between Devin and Parker really comes through. You believe them as boyfriend, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, you believe uh, the angst and the battles that then result because Devin brings a very strong personality to Anna, even while she's nice. She's very strong and is, no, I want this. I'm going to do this. And poor Sam is totally befuddled. It's like, I haven't had time to think about anything yet. Um, but you really did a wonderful job casting them. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how much rehearsal time did they get? Or did you really just go for in the moment like you did with those poor, poor young men <laughs> in an alley? My God, Tony. So we did do one whole day rehearsal where they, they went through the film, um, kind of half performance, but you know, when, when you're working in an indie, you don't have the luxury of doing two weeks of rehearsal, three weeks of rehearsal, anything right. like that with them. But, um, 
so what we did is we kind of strategically scheduled the shooting scenes for them to kind of happen or sometimes organically. So like the heavier scenes or where we needed a lot of emotion or we needed them to even look like a couple were sometimes scheduled later. Mm-hmm. And sometimes their first kiss that was captured on screen was in the early part of the day. So it was awkward. So it was a little kind of new lovey, a little playful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's just kind of what I knew going and I knew there, there's an opening scene with them at the pharmacy that, that I love. And that was actually the last scene that they shot together. So they're very warmed up at that time. They're very comfortable. They're, they're in their shoes and it just kind of comes across exactly how I think it would happen in real life. Well, now talk to me about the pharmacy scene because I started laughing when I saw it. Of all aisles for them to be in, in the pharmacy, yeah. the feminine hygiene product aisle. Seriously, Tony. <laughs> yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> oh, I knew it had to be on purpose. It had to be. Um, which actually, it, it really, it plays in very nicely with the whole idea of a teen pregnancy. Um, but yeah, I, I laughed when I saw that. I thought, okay, he thought that through. Uh, so I was impressed by your choice. <laughs> yeah, it was just, uh, you know, if, if it was going to be one aisle in a pharmacy, it always had to be that one. <laughs> had to be that one. Had to be that one. So now that the film, it is out, it's available to everybody on digital, DVD, um, you know, what is next for you? Are you just plugging along with Icon, getting the word out about it? Or are you working on a new project now uh, and implementing some of the lessons that you learned in making Icon? Absolutely. So Icon is is, is a huge focus right now Mm -hmm. with the release. It's my first film, so I'm obviously very excited just to get the word out and have people see it. And... I've been developing so many kind of different projects. I'm, I've got a couple in the works. I'm, I'm a huge horror fan, so I'm really trying to kind of get the wheels rolling on this horror film that I got under my sleeve. Mm-hmm. So excited to kind of bring a lot of these icon lessons to a horror movie where, you know, you can have these characters kind of live in this danger and you're 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 really in the moment with them versus so many cutting away at certain times and kind of doing those things so kind of trying to blend the two into a new film and see what happens Mm -hmm. well and i find it interesting you know being a horror fan as you as you say um you very easily could have pushed icon in the direction of a really horrifying experience for Sam, and you didn't. You didn't, mm-hmm. and I real I knowing that you like horror now, um, I am even more impressed with what you did with telling this story. Because you could have really gone in a much darker direction, and you didn't. Um, you kept it real, yeah. and you know, and it really at its heart. 
it's very sweet. We've got generational father, uh, father-son issues. We've got sibling issues. We've got boyfriend-girlfriend, impending parenthood, mother-son. You really give us the spectrum here, and, and you don't short shrift anybody. And at the end of the day, it's all very pure and honest, and there is a sweetness to it. So you've done you've done a wonderful job, Tony. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, the film needed to be this way. There's there's no other way. Um, we we did have a couple of alternative endings, but this was the one, and this was the way it was going to go because it, it absolutely could have been much darker. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of you know I I've always believed in this film as being you know Sam's journey and Sam's it being more about the story and what what he needed to go through and what it needed to happen versus putting my kind of horror flair on it mm-hmm. well but just letting it happen organically well you have done that you've done a wonderful job tony this has been so wonderful to have you on the show today. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, me too. This was great. You know, make get back to work. Make make some more films so you can come back and talk about them. Sounds good. We'll uh, do. Tony, thank you so much. And everybody can see Icon. It's on digital and DVD. So, Tony, thank you so, so much. And you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Tony. Bye-bye. And that was Tony Ahedo, writer, director, producer, editor of Icon. It really is. It's a sweet film. It's a POV, a a teen male POV on teen pregnancy. It's not something that you see every day. Very well done. A wonderful feature directorial debut. So, and now we're going to switch gears I am so thrilled and excited that we have Stephen Edwards with us to talk about Syndrome K. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. How are you? I am so excited to speak with you about this documentary. I was riveted. I was enthralled. I didn't know this story. Uh, It's one of those little obscure stories uh, that we are lucky enough that you discovered to bring it to and life. I feel lucky, by the way. You know, it, it really is. It's one of those secret stories, like you say, that just people just didn't know. And, you know, we were in Rome interviewing the people that, that participated in the film that were, you know, including the doctor that made up the fake disease. And we walked around the Jewish ghetto and just talked to elders there that had lived there their whole life and their family had been there for generations, and they'd never heard of it. Yeah, and this... So, it just and I was at the top of the show today. I've been mentioned uh, a good friend of mine, author Lisa Scotolini. She put a book out last year, her first historical novel, instead of legal thrillers and family thrillers. And oh, wow. she spent weeks and weeks in Italy, and the film and the book was set World War Two, and she went into the Jewish ghetto and did research there, but. I don't, I've got to find out from her if she had ever heard of this. 
um, in all of her research now because I'm just fascinated. Yeah, you know, this is so common. And there, there's a book called The Fall of Rome, which is kind of the quintessential book. Uh, the author's name is Katz, and he, you know, it's 550 pages long, and it is as complete of a story of the entire occupation as there ever was, and he never mentioned it once. How did you find well, this story, Stephen? How did well, you? Well, it's completely, <laughs> completely by mistake. So uh, <laughs> it turns out that, um, and actually, interestingly, a because I'm in the music business. That's what I do. I write. I know. TV. That's that's my day gig. And a very special colleague of mine called Mike Lang, who is probably the top, who was the top call piano player in Hollywood for you know years and years and years. Played on every. You've heard him play dozens of times without knowing it. One of those guys. He posted a meme on Facebook about it. And ironically and sadly, he passed away on Friday. Oh. And uh, so I put a post, a post on Facebook thanking Mike for being the person who basically I would not have known about the story were it not for Mike. And I'd known Mike for over 20 years because we used to do recording sessions together. We were both pianists. Um, you know, we just talked shop all the time. And uh, so, you know, it's basically some, he posted this meme on Facebook, and I'm like, wow, this looks like such a cool documentary. I have to see it. So I did what anybody would do. I went to Netflix and Amazon and DirecTV and, you know, all the streamers and said, you know, I want to find out. I want to watch this. This is so interesting. And there was nothing. I just couldn't believe that somebody wouldn't make this film. And, you know, here's this, you know, Catholic kid in his 50s who, you know, it had nothing to do with the story except the fact I also happened to be an Italian citizen. And I'd made another documentary that took place in Rome. So I took kind of a keen interest in all things Roman. So it kind of fell into my lap that way. And literally in the span of two minutes, I decided that this was going to be my next project. Some way or another, I'm going to make this film. Wow. How do you even start? Once you decide you want to tell this story, because there hasn't been anything out there written on this you know where do you start as a filmmaker well it's just it's a great question i mean it really is kind of like taking on a phd you know you sort of have mm -hmm. to start with your research and you're going to be writing something that nobody else has right you know if you do a a, a phd thesis on you know crow migration in you know new hampshire you've got to go find you know the specific information about that very tiny subject and mm -hmm. then flesh it out into something that's you can defend, right? And in this case, um, the first like, within a few minutes, I found out that Dr. Ozzuccini, who invented Syndrome K, was still alive and living in Rome, 90 wow. years old. Wow. So that really lit a fire under us to get over there and sit him down and talk to him, obviously because of his advanced age. And so I got a hold of a noted uh, Roman Jewish journalist called Ariella Pialtelli, and Ariella actually knew him and said she would be willing to set up an interview and translate for us. So we jumped on the next flight, basically, and flew over there and sat down. Dr. Ozzuccini sat down, Dr. Bor Dr. Borromeo's son, Pietro, who was in his 80s, mm -hmm. and then two Roman Jews who were survivors, both in their 80s. And then, you know, shot footage of the hospital, shot footage of, you know, just other things Roman. So that was the first, you know, now we had six days of shooting in. We had all this film. And now we've got to cover everything else up, and there's just, you know, nothing. There's some, a few pictures. There's a little bit of film that the Italians shot of the occupying Nazis, but mm -hmm. you know, they didn't shoot much because they were afraid, obvious reasons. So we just kind of went from there. It was just a fact-finding mission, you know? Wow. Wow. 
And it's the interviews that you have are incredible. The archival footage, um, you know, all these pieces of the puzzle. And as you accumulate them, then you've got to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together into what we call a film. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's this great interview with Michael Moore, who I admire because he's a filmmaker from Michigan like I am. And, you know, his first film, Roger and Me, just kind of rocked my world when I saw it because it just changed the whole scope of documentary filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said in his article is, you have to remember when you're making a documentary film that you're making a movie and it yep. has to be entertaining. You know, mm-hmm. you can't make a dry you know, a dry movie that nobody's going to be entertained by because you're competing against the best filmmakers in the world when you put your film out there. Yeah, you can't have just talking heads one after another. No way. No. No way. It'll never work. So that really drove it, too. And then also just the fact that they had, there was a study release, you probably read it like I did, about U.S. high school kids not really having much of an idea about what the Holocaust was or what happened. Don't don't even get me started on that one. That just... I can't believe the educational system has gotten that bad. And, and it, it astounded me as well, and it also kind of lit a f- another fire under me. Like, well, if I can tell my little micro story about the Holocaust, and and if this film can work on an on some level educationally, then I've succeeded. You know, because yeah. hopefully a kid will watch it and say, "Wow, this Holocaust thing, I'm really curious," and then they'll go and look at the you know the. I'm a micro story, and they'll they'll go look at the macro story mm-hmm. and really get an idea of what we're what, what we're looking at here, you know. And you know, my story is is a, a story about the best people can be in the face of the worst people ever, mm-hmm. right? And you know, if you you go down the rabbit hole of the Holocaust, it can get pretty depressing pretty yeah. fast. Yes. Um, but you know, my story is a story about people saving people they didn't know because it was the right thing to do. You know? mm-hmm. And that's what just absolutely riveted me about it to the point where I wanted to see the film. And then there's no film to see. I'm like, okay, I'll just make it. Yeah. You know? you know, so you get you gather all of this, and I love that you've got commentary in here of the Pope, Pope Pius at the time. Yep. And, you know, who... More or less, you know, a lot of people, church and state, he was kind of, you know, melding church and state to stay on the Nazis' good side in many yep. respects. And that's something that's, that that's people... true. And, you know, I've done actually a fair amount of research on it. But, you know, I always try to tell people that I'm a filmmaker, not a historian. Right. So I'm not, you know, I'm not the authority on this. But what, what I observe from what the people I talk to is that we have to remember the Pope was living in... Vatican City, which is the size of an 18-hole golf course. Right. And um, he had no army, you know. And there was 1,500 SS troops in the, inside the city walls of Rome, which is the size of Santa Monica. You know, it's small. So there was no toe-to-toe battle going on here in terms of, you know, the ferocity of the SS and the, you know, the peace that, the you know, that clergy is. You know, the, the, the clergy is about, you know, transforming people and helping people. And, you know, it's, a, it's such the polar opposite of what the SS was. So, you know, the doctors and the clergy fought it with, you know, cassocks and robes and, and you know, stethoscopes and medical charts. Mm-hmm. And that's what their weapons were. 
against the fiercest force ever assembled by mankind, and yeah. they beat him, which is I just love. You know, it's so Italian. It's so Italian. To flip, bird, and to, to flip the bird at these guys and say, oh, yeah, you think you're going to take our dues? Okay, good luck with that. Let you know, know and, that and everybody loves the underdog story. Yep, yep. And this is one of the original underdog stories <laughs> uh, when you yeah. get down to brass tacks. So once you accumulate all of this history, even though you're not a historian, you're right. doing a darn good job with this film at being one. I got to tell you, Stephen. Um, well, thank you. You know, once you accumulate it, how did you then go about developing your through line and putting all of these pieces together to come well, up the with, the, with the film? the good part about the story is it's a true story and it's a linear story, right? Right. So we have a nine-month occupation and we have <clears throat> the Fifth Army and the Allies working themselves from North Africa to Sicily then jumping over into Salerno and working themselves up to Rome and basically booting the Germans out, right, mm -hmm. with unbelievable cost. So there's this sort of ticking, you know, it's a perfect filmic uh, metaphor of the ticking clock, right? Yes. Because the Allies have to get to Rome and liberate Rome before the SS figures out the ruse. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, within um, two minutes of doing research and learning about the story for the first time, it was it's such a lucid memory in my head. You know, it's one of those Oprah Winfrey aha moments, like, wow, okay, the Fifth Army's working their way up. They've got, you know, everyday matters. It's the fiercest fighting of World War II that took place in Italy, for sure. And the doctors are trying to keep a secret from people that will basically, if they find out about the, if the SS found out about this, they would have probably executed everybody in the hospital. Oh, of probably course. Probably their, their families, too, right? Yeah. And so... <clears throat> that kind of wrote itself in terms of, you know, we knew we knew what the facts were. Now we just had to cover it with film and recreations and um, photographs and, of course, narration mm -hmm. to deliver the story in 52 minutes, you know. So that was the challenge of just sort of piecing it together, making a linear story that someone can follow. And remember, everybody in the movie speaks Italian except for one person. <laughs> the, uh, yes, so I noticed, yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're trying to deliver it to, you know, American audience in this case, because it's coming out, you know, this month. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a story that transcends language anyway. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely transcends language. I, this is a humanitarian tale. Um but and it's one that I'm sure, having seen this, I'm sure something similar has played out in other situations over the over yeah, the, sure over the too. decades, yeah. even over yeah. the centuries. Hundred um, percent. And you know now I want to go on a digging expedition to find out to find more. But you know yeah. once you start putting all of this together, um, you know number one, how difficult was it? to get a lot of these interviews. You had your first one. Yep. Um, you had that one taken care of. You know, but then you, you bring in others um, that are, yes, that are that's, important. that's a fascinating um, story because the, the hardest get was Dr. Ozzacini, who was 98 at the time, because basically we flew to Rome, and our um, translator told us, she said, you know, look, he's 98. He has good days and bad days. We might show up at his house. And his daughter might come to the door and say, you know what? We're off. Mm -hmm. He's not feeling well. you got to go. You know, we all flew in from the States, and we're, you know, we're trying to sit the guy down. 
And when he sat down and just, you know, was so amazing and just so irascible and, you know, just, a, you know, being in the presence of a true hero, yes. right? That's like, I treasure the picture with Dr. Ozzuccini that I, that I have. Um, so it's just, it was just such a cool experience, you know, in this, in this beautiful compound in the hills above Rome. His entire family lives there. His four kids have their own little apartments in his compound. And his his daughter is a physician at Fetti Benefertelli to this day. She still works there. Oh my god! So that was you know that was a great get to get Ozzuccini. And then the other amazing find was through the Shoah Foundation, which is Spielberg's foundation. Mm-hmm. Which he founded after Schindler's List. And in their great wisdom, they went into Rome around the year 2000 and interviewed a bunch of survivors. And one of the survivors they interviewed was Dr. Vittorio Sacerdoti. And Dr. Sacerdoti was one of the doctors that co-invented Syndrome K, who was actually an Italian Jew practicing in a Catholic hospital with fake identity, fake papers, saving members of his own family. I mean, it just doesn't get, I mean, I I couldn't make this story up if I tried. No, no. So that archive contained the interview with Dr. Sacerdoti. And the cool part was, you know, I've got the whole entire interview. You know, we probably used four minutes of it in the movie, five minutes max. And he finishes his interview, you know, stands up, takes off his microphone, and then Mrs. Leah Dinola walks in to the same room and sits on this couch, the same couch, and then starts her interview. And now she is his cousin, who 50 years before he had saved. Oh, my God. And they're God. sitting around, you know, drinking Brunello and eating pasta together. And, you know, it's just kind of, oh kind of amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, Roman Jews hanging out. So, uh, wow. You know, the the... We, without the Shoah Foundation, without them doing those interviews, because Sacerdote died soon after that interview, um, it's it would have been really difficult to have a film because we don't have his point of view. Plus, he's the he's the Jew practicing with fake identity. Yeah, uh, he's the kind of the cool hook of the story that they even brought him into the hospital at all is pretty remarkable. And by the way, gutsy and mm-hmm. unbelievably risky. Well, and what I love, you know. It, Going back to Dr. Osacini for a bit, um, you know, you said, that, you know, he might not have been up to, you know, an interview when you showed up when you got there. But I got to tell you, he, you can, you see it in his eyes. You see his passion. You feel uh, his, his fierce determination. He wants to tell this story. And that really comes across his conviction is is amazing, amazing. It's just, isn't it astounding? I mean, and at that age, yes. and just the fact that he, you know, this guy lived an unbelievable life. I mean, he showed us his scars from when he got his butt kicked by the Gestapo in 1944. Uh, this guy's, you know, no BS. He was, he was a tough guy. Well. And, uh, you know. You just gotta love him. I mean, oh. he's like my my Sicilian grandfather. You know, you just want to grab him and hug him, and then you know, eat a bunch of pasta and drink some Brunello. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you listen to the to the unfolding stories um, of this whole event, it makes you very teary. You know, you get a you get a lump in your throat because you you sit there and you realize just how insignificant. 
You think about people that, you know, well, I've done this and I've done this. And it's like, no, no. You know, these are. It's so true. And the other fascinating thing is, you know, the fact that nobody's heard of the story. I mean, these three doctors after 1945, you know, June 4th of 44 was a liberation. And remember, June 6th was D-Day. So it was not a good week for the Nazis. Yeah, not at all. But, um, you know, they after this happened, they really didn't walk around and crow about what they'd done. You know, they didn't. Seek. I mean, there was there was one other short interview with Sacerdote that we couldn't even find. The BBC had it, and they lost it. Oh my God! And, yeah, it's like can you imagine that. Like, oh, geez, <gasps> really? Can't you? You know, go look again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> fortunately, we had the we had the show interview, but um, just you know the fact that um, it was just you know the the archives told us so much. You know, I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, when we talk about Hero, when we talk about them being tough guys, you got one of the best tough guys ever to narrate this documentary, Ray Liotta. Um, Wow. And, you know, with Ray's recent passing, that adds another layer of gravitas to Syndrome K. It really does, you know, and... um, we were just so sorry. It was just such a shock because we live in the same community, and actually our daughters went K through 8 and 9 through 12 together. That's how oh. I was connected to him. And so uh, we were finishing the film, and, like, we're looking for a narrator, and we're thinking of people, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What about Ray? So I composed an email, and I said, hey, you know, Ray, Steve Edwards here, Bella's dad, Bella and Carson went to school together, blah, blah, blah. Doing this documentary, Syndrome K., you know, Nazi or Italian saving Jews, World War Two. Would you be possibly interested in narrating it? And sent the email off, thinking, "Oh, geez, he's probably not even going to get back to me." And he was actually at the Toronto Film Festival with his daughter Carson, and gets the email and opens it, and she's sitting there at a screening, and he goes, "Well, who's this guy, Steve Edwards, and who's Bella Edwards?" And like he did, I and mean, we'd met before, but we didn't know each other. Yeah. And she goes, "Oh my God, Bella, my friend from school." And <laughs> so I'm sure she coerced him a little. And two weeks later, he's in my studio where I'm sitting right now, oh recording the voiceover. And uh, my editor Greg Hunter and my writer Greg Ballard came over to the house where my studio is, and we watched the first 30 minutes of Goodfellas just to kind of get ourselves in the vibe mm-hmm. of what Ray did. I mean, talk about the greatest narration in the history of cinema. Yeah, that's up there, top four, top five, easy. And we watched it. We just looked at each other. We're like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy's going to come do our little film. Like, this is the best thing ever. So, you know, Ray comes in, and he's just a consummate professional, super funny, you know, just a guy's guy. Just a, You just want to hang out with him, you know. He's just got stories, profane, hilarious. And, you know, we put the script in front of him that had all, this, all these non-English words, you know, Fate Bene Fratelli Hospital. Dr. Adriano Ossicini, Dr. Vittorio Saccadori. I mean, these words don't just roll off the tongue for, you know, an American speaking English. And, you know, he'd say a name and he'd, and he'd fall on it a little bit and he'd you know, drop four or five F-bombs and we'd all laugh. And then he'd stop and he'd do it again and he'd crush it. He did the whole movie in three hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my so God. So it was just, you know, such a joy to work with him. And I ran into him probably six months ago. Uh, in our little village here, and I said, hey, Ray, you know, Steve Edwards Syndrome, okay? He goes, oh, I want to see the film. And I said, I'll send you a link. And, of course, it never happened. Mm. 
And, you know, we just thought he was, he had so much in front of him. You know, yes. he was working on a film. It was just so unexpected, and we were so sad, and we were so grateful because, you know, Ray really is the voice of the film. Ray he is truly our, is. Our guide. He's the guy that tells us the story. Mm-hmm. So um, we're just so grateful and, and sorry at the same time, but, you know, Ray left us something that's significant. Oh, abs- absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm curious, with the narration, how difficult was it for you and your co-writer, Greg Ballard, how difficult was it to, quote-unquote, script this, script <laughs> the narration? Um, yeah. Because that had to be a challenge. And I have to tell you, before you answer, one of the great things about this documentary and about the narr- the narration itself, it has a flow to it, much like a musical composition. Interesting. And Interesting. I really love that. It's almost like well, the tide, you know, the ebb and flow of the tides yeah, you know, of the I Tiber. Probably, maybe subconsciously. I mean, Greg is the writer. Greg wrote the words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had, the, we had the gaps to put Ray Liotta in, so mm-hmm. we knew where everything was, and we actually even had temp narration just to kind of give us an idea sure. of what goes where, what goes where. But you're, prob- you're right. I mean, it's probably, you know, subconsciously. I mean, even the compositions that I wrote for this film, they have their ebbs and flows, too. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it stands to reason that that's what happened with the narration, too, that it just has its own little shape to it, you know. Um, subconsciously, I'm sure that is, is playing, a, you know, played a role. I mean, it, how can it not for a story like this? Yeah, but I love that structure. I, especially with a documentary like this, especially with a story like this, where you do, you need that ebb and, pl- ebb and flow emotionally. Otherwise, you're yeah, going to be on tenor hooks the entire exactly. time. You know, it's yeah, going to be a Hitchcock. You need to, hear from, you need to hear from the people, too, that it happened to. So we were able to sort of pivot between the actual, the actual survivors and, you know, Ray, our sort of spiritual guide, if mm-hmm. you will. You know, Ray is, you know, taking us to the next, next chapter of the story, if you want to call it chapter. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of the two, and they play off of each other. And uh, it's it now seems natural, you know. It it just it moves you from point A to point B, right? And so does the score. The score yes. does the same thing. I love the, the, the score. Is beautiful, Stephen. Oh, thank you. The score. I'm such a, a huge nerd when it comes to to musical scores. My master's thesis was on the Hollywood movie musical. Um, no kidding. So I love. Wow. I love score. In television, in film, I love motifs. Uh, I love instrumentation because oh, that that brings so much to the fore. And and I had I got to have so much fun with this. You know, oh. I think you saw, probably saw on our website that the um, you know I I figured this is a world orchestra and I'm sort of hiring myself. So we have orchestras from all over the world. All over the score, which was a really cool thing to do. And uh, you know, it's it's Prague. Moscow, Rome, Belgrade, London, Hollywood. Am I forgetting one? Um, yeah, I mean, it was everybody got to sort of contribute to the score, and, you know, writing it was such a joy because, you know, I was the filmmaker, so I was writing as we cut, and cut, we were cutting as I wrote, mm-hmm. 
which is something I don't get to do very often, as you can imagine. <laughs> Normally you get it and you've got, okay, we need this in two weeks here. Exactly. Or it's, which okay. The we... last two movies I did was, you know, three weeks of writing furiously for, you know, every day, all day. Until oh. it's done. I know. I've spoken with so many composers over the years, and they get in, you know, Brian Tyler, uh, you know, the Danas, and sometimes you don't, you've got, or, dis, or you know, the fabulous Desplat, um, you don't get time sometimes. Right, right. Um, I know Aaron Zygman, he had, had to compose for an animated film, and I think he had nine different character motifs he had to come up with, and he had less than two weeks to do it all. Plus the whole overall score, and then yeah. work in all of these character motifs. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's amazing that we can, we can get anything done at all. You know, I'm curious, from a musical standpoint with Syndrome K, what were you looking for? Since, this is, since you're the storyteller here, you and Greg, and you've researched this, you're the ones who put it together. Were you formulating what kind of musical emotionality you were looking for as you were putting this together? Or did you wait until oh, you saw gosh, you know, it, what it was before you came up? It was kind of both, up? actually. Um, because it was kind of, or, they were kind of organically feeding off of each other. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, the the sort of emotional theme that I wrote, actually, interestingly, we're shooting a video today with Lisbeth Scott. Lisbeth is the voice in the last cue, that sort of um, beautiful vocalese. She's sung on so many big Hollywood movies, Passion of the Christ, and, mm-hmm. um, oh, I mean, her list of credits is unbelievable. Also, she's a very talented composer in her own right. And we're shooting today at 5 o'clock for the last cue in the movie that um, we shot... I conducted I conducted the string orchestra in Hollywood, and then we're going to superimpose her with some some images. So, like, there's that emotional, you know, moment at the end where we talk about what you know everything wrapping up. And then also, I got to have fun with. I took the German national anthem and flipped it on its ear, stuck it in a minor key, turned it upside down, and I used the German national anthem kind of against the Nazis. If that makes any sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I kind of took, and I took little fragments of it and put it into some of these sort of um, sort of nervous cues where you almost wouldn't recognize it. Like I'd flip it, up, I'd flip it upside down, but I used the actual notes. So it has sort of a organic um, material there, but it would take sort of a musicologist to dig in there and look at the score and say, oh, there's the, uh, no, there's the Haydn theme. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of fun to sort of... Um, go in there and geek out on uh, taking the German National Anthem and making it be something else that it was intended to be. Wow. Wow. And as well you should do. Exactly. (laughs) As well you should do. Now, everybody will get to see Syndrome K next week. It's available digitally on August 16th, I think. Yep. Yep. Um, on On all the usual suspect platforms. The usual suspects will be containing this link, so yes. I, I Now, are there any plans uh, for a DVD in the future that may have some extras of additional interview clips or things like that? Yeah, my, uh, my distributor is actually releasing a DVD as well, I think, I'm at the same time. 
there's that. There's a plan for to release, you know, a physical DVD. And the other exciting thing we're doing is we're developing um, a feature film version of this. Oh. So, and I joke with people. I said the movie will be better than the doc. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Right. The doc is pretty darn impressive here, Stephen. Well, that's sweet. Uh, so we actually had a. I can't tell you his name yet because we haven't announced. We don't have a contract, but we. We had a Zoom, a very exciting Zoom call last week with an Italian director who has taken very keen interest in directing the feature version. We have a script that Greg also wrote, Greg Ballard. Oh. And interestingly, this guy met Dr. Ozzuccini when he was a kid because his dad was oh friends my with God. him. So, oh, my like, God. Wow. It's amazing how all this synergy just kind of flips back. Yeah, the cinematic gods are at work, Stephen. It's huge. They want this story so, out there. Yeah. We're super excited about him. So uh, stand by for a cool announcement, hopefully soon. Oh, God. That yeah. will just, just the idea of that is giving me little goosebumps on my arm. There you go. I'm, me too, by the way. I'm very excited about that. I can't yeah. wait. Oh, I can't wait either. Stephen, this has been so fantastic talking with you about Syndrome K. Um, this is, without a doubt, one of my top film and doc picks of the year so far. Well, um, thank you. That's really nice to hear. It's so great to hear somebody give it back to you because I'm so in the weeds. I just like, ah, oh, I don't know. Is this thing any good? <laughs> yes, it is beyond yeah. good, Stephen. Do not doubt yourself. Oh, you my that. God. So you have to come back on the show again, even just to talk about new, new music compositions for films. I would love it. Anytime. Oh, my God. This has been so fabulous, and I can't encourage everyone enough. Next week, the 16th, a week from today, see it, see it, see it, Syndrome K. It is a piece of history that everybody should know about. It's phenomenal. 100%. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much. And hopefully— Thanks for having me. I really appreciate oh. it. It's great to meet you, you know, virtually here. Absolutely a thrill to meet you, because uh, I have been a fan of your musical work for quite a while. Thank you for that. But I oh, that. and we will do this again sooner rather than later. I hope. Can't wait. Oh, Stephen, thank you. And you Cheers, have, a, have a good rest of you too. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. And that was Stephen Edwards, director, co-writer, composer, Syndrome K. Next week. See it. It is an un, a relatively unknown piece of history of World War II. Um, it will blow your mind, quite honestly. Uh, the historical aspect, the fact that it is Ray Liotta's final, last narration of a film, it just adds another level of poignancy to this. Um, but yeah, you, you want to talk about heroes, you want to learn about heroes. These doctors are the real heroes of history. And I still in embar I'm still embargoed by Disney, but I can tell you Wednesday, August 10th, I am Groot. Five episodes of Baby Groot. You will go nuts. That's all I that's all I can say. I can't do a review of it. I can't talk about the episodes, but suffice to say, it's Baby Groot. And who doesn't love Baby Groot? Well, that is all the time we have today. 
next I'll be back next week. Who do we have next? Oh, we have a full house again next week. We're going to be talking about a game app next week. Time Detectives. I have to I have to download it and, and play it this week. I may have Pam play it too because she likes playing app games. So, but so we should have Charlotte Mickelborg with us next week, and tentatively, I think Scott Mann, but I'm not sure. Uh, but I will be here. Hope you will be too. In the meantime, you can catch up on all of our shows. A ton of interviews. Uh, that I've been popping out on YouTube channel and on the website, BehindTheLensOnline.net. You can find everything there. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 